0: Well, good morning. Happy Merry Christmas uh, to each and every single one of you. Uh, So glad uh, that we got to see our children perform. Wasn't that amazing? Can we give them another round of applause? Yeah, that was amazing. Um, I I don't have very much time, so I've got to jump into a few announcements. We are going to have a Christmas Eve as well as a New Year's Eve service this year. So just go to our website. You can check out the times there. Uh, But we do invite you to bring friends and family, non-Christians, non-believers, whoever it might be, to to these services. Also, starting next year, uh, January 5th, uh, we're going to be having a a youth group uh, orientation. And so I I announced in September uh, of this year, and so if, uh, if you're a parent of a youth student, uh, meaning 6th grade to 12th grade Uh, please uh, sign up for this meeting. Uh, It's just an orientation. It doesn't mean you have to send your uh, your child to the youth ministry, but we just want to orient you as to what's going to be happening. And so uh, that's on January 5th. That's a Wednesday at 7.15 p.m. over Zoom. So please go ahead and sign up. You can find that on our website under the events page as well. And then finally, starting on January 2nd, which is our first Sunday of the new year, we're going to start a new series called The Temptations of Christ. And uh, the reason why we're doing this is because the new year is all about resurrection resolutions, uh, but with resolutions come temptation. And so we want to study Christ and his temptations uh, to really learn how it is that we can fight our own temptations as well. So please join us for that. Well, let's dive into our sermon for today. We're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. We've been in a series called Honest Advent, and we're at the final sermon here. Next week, we're just going to do a one-off on Matthew chapter 3 uh, about John the Baptist, uh, and then uh, starting in the new year, we'll uh, begin the temptations of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, But uh, we've been in the series, and we're talking about uh, the four aspects of Advent. Uh, Gospel or hope was week one. Love was week two, and we studied the nature of it. Uh, week three we looked at joy and then today we're going to look at this idea of peace and how do we have internal peace and uh, as you as you Probably very well know, there's there's sort of two things that I think our culture thinks about when it comes to peace. We think of, okay, I've got to be meditative, I've got to think tranquil thoughts in order to find peace, or I've got to master my surroundings in order to find external peace. So it's either an internal sort of meditative, tranquil state, or it's externally mastering all of my surroundings in order to find this peace. But how do you have peace when your world is in trouble? How do you have peace when the world is in chaos? How do you have peace when a storm literally comes and hits your home? How do you have this kind of peace? And Christians, we say this, it's all about Jesus, that it's not in this internal meditative state, although that's sometimes helpful. It's not in mastering your surroundings, which at times is helpful, but it's It's really about a person, and his name is Jesus. And that's the whole series, right? Love, joy, hope, and peace ultimately doesn't come from us having the strength to meditate or to do these things. It's ultimately about us having a relationship with this person named Jesus Christ. And so let's go ahead and read our passage for today. If you're able to, would you rise? Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 18. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, I'll I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God, I'll pray for us, and then I'll seat you after the reading of God's word. Uh, Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, on this Christmas Sunday, we pray and ask for your peace. Lord, we know that um, Christmas is not just a time of hot cocoa and Santa, but Lord, it is a time of reminding ourselves, Lord, of the true peace that we have even in the midst of suffering. And so, Lord, would you help us today, especially those who are in the midst of suffering, Lord, we pray and ask for your comfort and peace here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Um, So we're going to talk about uh, how to find peace in Christ. And really, there's four uh, things that I think this passage has to say to us about finding this kind of peace. The first is this, God is in control. Uh, The second point is that God suffers the third is that uh, Jesus is our Savior, and then lastly is where to walk in obedience. Um, so four points. Uh, hopefully, we can go through these very quickly, though. Uh, so let's dive into our first point. God is in control. If you look at the the beginnings of this passage, it's chaotic for Jesus. Right? You find out that the king of the Jews, King Herod, is one of the most powerful guys who wants to kill and destroy Jesus. And so he can't destroy and kill Jesus because he's been tricked. He goes and he kills all the male children under two years old. This is crazy. This is not a normal person that does this. And so Jesus and Joseph and Mary have to escape, and so they escape down to Egypt. But Egypt, mind you, at that time was not friendly towards Jewish people. Uh, in fact, there are many uh, documents that show us that Egyptians were extremely harsh against the Israelite people. And so although they fled to their safety, they still faced persecution in Egypt. Mind you now, they didn't have cars, they didn't have trucks, they walked. And so they had to carry minimally all this stuff with them. And they're traveling lightly, they're traveling down to Egypt where there could be robbers and all sorts of thieves along the way, uh, violent people who could attack them. And this is the beginning of our Savior's life. It's in the midst of this chaotic time. And in this chaotic time, look at what verse 14 and 15 say. It's sort of strange. Matthew just inserts this little prophecy in there. He says, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. And again, we talked about this last week or uh, several weeks ago where we said prophecies are just God's plans fulfilled. It's just showing us that God is in control of everything. Again, if you look there at verse 18, he gives another prophecy about this voice being heard in Ramah. And what Matthew is getting us to see here is that God is in control of everything. That God is in control. Look, you're going through the suffering, Jesus, Joseph, Mary. You're going through all of this stuff. There's all this evil. But don't you worry. This is all a part of God's plan. Don't worry. Don't worry. In the midst of a storm, in order for us to have peace, it's not about looking inwards. It's not about controlling our external circumstances, but it's understanding that God is in control of all things. And yet here's the thing I I oftentimes find in our culture is that we oftentimes, in the midst of suffering, we oftentimes remove God and we think the best solution is to say, well, God is not in control. God is not good. God is not even there in order to alleviate ourselves from this suffering, I see this all the time, and what ends up happening is they they say, how can a good God allow evil and suffering in this world, so therefore, I'm not going to believe in God any longer, and yet, this is contrary to what the scriptures tell us. This is contrary to logic itself. I mean, imagine this for a moment. Imagine you're on a plane, and all of a sudden, the plane starts shaking in turbulence, right? It's just going crazy, chaotic. Would it be more comforting for you to know that there is no pilot there in the cockpit, Right? Oh, that explains the turbulence. I know why there's turbulence now, because there's no pilot. Would that bring you comfort and peace? Would that, would that solve your problems at that moment? Or would it be better for you to understand, hey, there's a good pilot in this c- cockpit who's going to take us through this incredibly difficult time? And you know, what people oftentimes do in suffering is they abandon their belief in God. And yet if you abandon your belief in God, then there is no purpose for your suffering. Like, your suffering is literally just neurons and chemicals firing in your brain, making you feel pain, and that's all it is. You're just a big blob of goo and and flesh and tissue, and there's nothing more to your suffering. There's no purpose. There's nothing to your suffering, and yet if there is a God, and a good God, in, in fact, then there is purpose, and there is a love, and there is goodness behind the suffering that we experience. And here's just something from my own experience and observations. I'm not that old, but I think just in, in the short time that I've been alive, this is just my personal observations. You can disagree with me. But I've noticed, generally speaking, that people who are in the midst of tremendous evil and suffering don't abandon their beliefs in God. They actually run towards God, but it's actually people who oftentimes observe suffering from a distance who are actually not in the midst of suffering that oftentimes have the most logical questions about God and suffering. And so let me give you a real personal close to home example. Uh, I asked um, this particular church member if I could share about his life, and he gave me permission to do so. But Paul Brockway, he's sitting right there, Uh, he's been with our church for about two and a half years now, and there's two things you need to know about Paul, and two things that uh, really stand out if you have lunch with Paul, if you ever sit with Paul, uh, is really two things. One is that Paul has probably suffered more than anybody else in this room. That's hands down. He's probably suffered more than anybody else in this room. And, And very recently, a few years back, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and I don't think I need to go into the details of Parkinson's. And yet you would think that somebody who's diagnosed with this would say, you know what, God is not in control. Uh, God sucks, why would he do this to me? I'm gonna abandon my beliefs. And yet, here's the second thing you need know, to you know about Paul is that Paul loves the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is in control all the more. In fact, I challenge, I, dare, I challenge anybody in this church to love the sovereignty of God more than Paul does. I've literally never met anybody that loves the sovereignty of God more. In fact, whenever I preach on the sovereignty, persecuting you, church. Remember Remember that God God is actually in control of all of this stuff. Don't you worry. We have a good and amazing pilot at the helm. And friends, if we want peace, everlasting peace, peace that this world cannot understand, it begins with starting that understanding that God is in control. Let's move on to our second point, God suffers. Uh, again, there are two prophecies here, okay? Let's move to the second prophecy now. Uh, in verse 18, it says this, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more Um, uh, very quickly about prophecies. Uh, My Old Testament professor said prophecies have two fulfillments or oftentimes will have multiple fulfillments. So there's a a context in which the prophet is speaking to and then there's sometimes an unknown even uh, use of this prophecy that the prophet doesn't know about that God has in store. So one prophecy can have multiple fulfillments in other words. And this is one of those cases when Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, when he's speaking this pronouncement, he's talking about the Jewish people being exiled. And he's seeing the Jewish people have just seen their homes burned, their temple burned, their loved ones killed and smashed to the ground. And Jeremiah gives this prophecy saying, look, Rachel laments, Rachel herself cries. And here Matthew is picking up on this and saying, look, this prophecy is fulfilled in Christ again because when these children are destroyed by King Herod, we hear Rachel once again weeping. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, who is Rachel? Rachel was the wife of Jacob who ends up changing his name to Israel. He's the father of Israel. And the reason why Jeremiah uses Rachel here is because he's saying Rachel is the mother of Israel. She's the mother of all of Israel. Because if you remember, Jacob had two wives, Leah, but he also had another wife, Rachel, and Rachel was his favorite. And Rachel ends up having two children, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph ends up, having, uh, Joseph ends up becoming the father of two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and Benjamin, of course, the tribe of Benjamin. Well, Joseph's tribes end up going to the north. Israel gets separated into two kingdoms, so, uh, northern, southern. Joseph goes to the north. Benjamin goes to the south. And if you see there, right, she's the mother over all Israel because one of her children went north, one of her children went south. And so what Jeremiah is saying here is, look, the mother of Israel herself, although she is dead, is weeping because this catastrophe is so incredible. In fact, if you look there, it says Rama. Rama was six miles north of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, which is where all these children are being killed, is six miles south of Jerusalem. So there's 12 miles between these cities and it is a very long way. And so what what Matthew is saying here is, look, this this tragedy, this suffering is so great that this dead woman who is the mother of all Israel, who's in the ground, who's buried in Ramah, we can even hear her cries coming from the ground because this is how great this suffering is. The suffering of Israel is so great that the mother of Israel can, can be heard crying over her children. If Rachel weeps don't you think God weeps? In Isaiah 49:15, it says this, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Here's what God is saying. God is saying, look, a mother's love is the strongest love on planet earth. And yet even sometimes moms can forget. Even sometimes mom can be non-compassionate towards their children. And yet God, he says, I will never be that way. I will never ever forget you. If Rachel weeps, don't you imagine that God weeps as well. And the scriptures are rich with this, right? Jesus weeps in the gospel of Luke over Jerusalem. Jesus weeps when his friend Lazarus dies. The book of Ephesians tells us that the Holy Spirit grieves a lot. And I know it's strange for us to believe that God cries, but this is what the scriptures tell us is that he weeps in our suffering that he weeps right alongside of us. And I think oftentimes the reason why we can't imagine God weeping and crying over his people is because he's God. I think it's hard for us, right? We're like, God weeps? Why would he weep? Isn't he God? Couldn't he just stop my misery and my suffering? Why would he weep then? If he's weeping, can't he stop it? And yet here's the thing. I think we all understand this. God can desire something that causes suffering, and yet at the same time he can be in control, and yet at the same time he can weep and mourn over that. Let me give you a very clear example, something that, especially parents, we all know this, right? When my son Josiah was first born, they told us, hey, you know, uh, he has a tongue tie, right? He can't latch on as well as other babies can, so we're going to have to cut his tongue, and so I, you know, they, they take me to this room, they take my son Josiah, by the way, he was a little premature, he was barely five pounds, I think he was like four pounds and like 15 ounces, this tiny little baby, I get ushered into this room, the doctor tells me, hey, don't you worry, there's going to be a lot of blood, uh, but don't you worry, it's fine. I I see my son being placed on this thing. They don't put him to sleep. They don't give him any anesthesia, right? They just go in there and they clip his tongue. And all of a sudden, all this blood, I apologize, starts gushing out of his mouth. And in that moment, I'm like panicked. I'm like, even though he warned me, like, this is going to be hard to watch. I'm like, what are you doing? And I started mourning and weeping inside. And yet now if you ask me, Eric, is this your desire? Is this your will for your son's tongue to get cut? Yes. Am I sad about that? Yes, absolutely. I can have a will and a desire and yet at the same time weep and mourn. And God is the same exact way. Two things can be true at the same time. Something can be in my will and yet I can weep and mourn. And all I'm trying to say with this is that it is possible for God to be good, God to be in control, sovereign, and yet weep and cry over his people's suffering. Look, and if you're going through a difficult season of life, and if you are suffering, remember that God suffers with you. That when you cry, he cries. That when you weep, he weeps. That when you mourn, he mourns. That he suffers alongside of you, and this should bring us peace. Look, a lot of times, we as people, we, we see injustice. We see suffering. We see the Midwest and the South being devastated. We see refugees running for their lives. We see uh, uh, injustice everywhere, and we meet and we mourn. And yet somehow we think we're better than God? Like, don't you think that God looks at this injustice and weeps and mourns over it and cries? He suffers alongside of us. You are not alone in your suffering. God is suffering with you. And in fact, I think that this is the very reason why Matthew puts this in the gospel. He's telling the persecuted church again, look, do you understand you understand that yes you are being persecuted by the Romans you are suffering your documents are being burned your people are being killed and yet remember Jesus as soon as he was born on the face of this planet he just started suffering he was persecuted from the very beginning King Herod goes after his life all these people try to kill him get at him he is a refugee at the very beginning of his life remember that he suffered alongside you he does not leave you alone in your suffering he's suffering with you right this moment And in fact, I would say that our Lord knows our suffering better than we do. Let's move on to our third point. Jesus is our Savior. You know, there's something interesting going on in this passage that uh, a lot of uh, Matthew scholars pick up on. And it's not uh, uh, there for everyday readers, but but if you have read through the Gospel of Matthew, you might kind of notice it's kind of strange about the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And it's, it's here in this passage pronounced all the more, which is this. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. Uh, Look here, right? If you look at the passage, there are words being used here like this, right? Joseph, dream. What does that remind you of, right? Genesis, Joseph and his dreams and the technicolor coat, right? Uh, And what what happens with Joseph? He goes to Egypt, right? Uh, And just like the book of Genesis, right? What happens at the end of that story is that all the Israelites end up in Egypt, and if you look here, right, just like Moses, right, what happens in the book of Exodus, right? Moses is being persecuted. He flees to Egypt. And what happens in Egypt is he's saved, right? He, he stays there. And then out of Egypt, here comes this guy named Moses. And in the same way, right, at the beginning of Jesus' life, he's being persecuted just like Moses was. He flees to Egypt. And then now out of Egypt, he's being called. Out of Egypt is now going to come this salvation, And up until this point in Israeli history, Moses was seen as Israel's greatest savior. The Passover was the time for them to remember their salvation. And who was the forerunner of this salvation was Moses himself. And yet what Matthew is telling us here is that Moses is just a foreshadow of what Jesus is going to come to do, that Moses came to save the people out of slavery, and yet Jesus is going to come to save not just our bodies, but our souls. Moses would come and give the Ten Commandments, and yet Jesus would give us an even greater commandment to love God and to love people, right? Moses would save them through his staff raised up high, but Jesus would save us through his body being raised up on the cross, and over and over again, this theme of Jesus being the greater Moses is there. And all this is say that Jesus is our ultimate savior. That He has come once to die for us on a cross, to die for our sins. And yet, he's coming back again. And this, friends, should bring us peace. That Jesus Christ has not left us. That Jesus Christ is not saying, hey, look at all this evil that's happening in the world. Bye-bye now. Hope you guys deal with it yourselves. No, Jesus says, I'm going to come back to right all the wrongs. And friends, this should bring us peace. You know, whenever I turn on the news these days, I'm just so crushed in my spirit. You know, global warming, I I listen to this podcast on how global warming is just going crazy and nuts and how there's virtually basically maybe no hope for humanity at some point. Right? You turn on the news and you find out that there's a storm that hit the Midwest and the South. You turn on the news, you find out that uh, you know, conservatives are hating liberals and liberals are hating conservatives. You find out that there are wars everywhere. You find out that people hate each other. They're greedy. They whore. And there's you know, uh, just all sorts of evils happening in our world. And I, and I, and I really, I, I get bogged down. And I'm like, man, there's no hope for us. We get smarter and smarter every year, and yet even though we've invented great pieces of technology, we've also decided to create better ways to kill each other. Like before with a sword, you could only kill one person at a time. Now we can kill millions of people with a bomb. And I think about this, and it brings my heart so much pain and anxiety. And yet when I think again that Jesus Christ is coming back, friends, He's coming back to cancel out all the evils of the world, to put things back right, that he is in control, that He is sovereign, and he's good, and he has a plan for us all, friends. It brings me peace to remember that I don't have to cure everything, that we don't have to cure everything. All we need to be is obedient to him and let God be in control, and this brings me peace, friends, and I pray that the coming salvation should bring us peace as well. You know, um, uh, 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 I think several summers ago, uh, my family and I went out to Sunkadia. Uh, and at Sunkadia, it's, it's, uh, if you don't know, I think it's east of here, a little southeast of here. But it's a great little vacation area here in Washington. And uh, there's a, I think there's a lake, or I don't know if it's a lake or river or whatever, but it's a lake. It looks like a pretty big body of water. But uh, I took my son out there to uh, go kayaking. And so we go out there, we're kayaking, we're having a great time, but as we're beginning to kayak, the winds and the waves begin to pick up. It reminds me of that Peter story, right? Like literally the winds and the waves start to pick up and we're on this canoe or this kayak and I'm paddling and I'm like, it's getting worse and worse and I feel the boat actually being pulled outwards by the current. So I start to panic. So I start rowing in. I'm like, okay, Josiah, we got to go back home. we got to go back home, right? And I didn't want to capsize because at that time, I, and this was my stupidity, was I didn't put a life jacket on him. And so we're rowing. He's, he was probably like two or three years old at the time. I'm rowing. I'm trying to get back to shore safely when all of a sudden this wave hits me and we capsize. And I remember I, we flipped over. I came out from underneath the water. First thing is I'm looking for Josiah and I find him and I lift him up over, above the water because he had been under the water. I lift him above the water, and, and, but as I'm lifting him up, I, I go under the water. I, I can't hold him up and swim at the same time, and I'm realizing, okay, I've got to hold him up, but at the same time, I've got to get us back to shore. I don't know how to do this, and so I, I, I have a moment where I'm able to pop my head up and I can see the shore, and for a while, I'm just trying to make it back myself. I'm trying to do it myself. I'm really just trying to save ourselves and try to swim back to shore, but I, I'm realizing this current is too strong. I see a family at the shore, and uh, just at a a moment notice, I, I pop my head up, and I just say, help, help, and I felt so shameful doing that. I don't know why. Isn't that strange that we feel so shameful calling out for help? I felt like the most ridiculous person on planet Earth. Like, I can't save my own son. I can't save myself. I can't do anything. I pick up my, and I yell, help, and this dad. Man, he was so awesome. He just ran into the water with his son. He had like a 14-year-old son, 12-year-old son. They ran into the water. They came swimming to us. Uh, The son grabbed my my son, and he grabbed me, and they they dragged the boat. They dragged everything to shore, and they saved us. And I remember as soon as I yelled out help, I did feel a, a great deal of shame. I felt like I failed as a father, I felt like I failed as a parent, I felt like I failed my son, and yet at the same time, I remember as soon as I saw them dive into the water, I literally felt this peace and this hope fill up my, in my heart. Help is coming. Help is on, is on its way. They're gonna come and help us, don't you worry. And friends, in the same way, although we're drowning in our sins and our evil, the things that we've done to ourselves through our sins, there's a savior that's coming he's going to come and he's going to rescue us. He's going to rescue us and he's going to complete the work that he did on the cross for us. And this friends should bring us peace. Lastly, and just very quickly, point number four, everything I talked about is all about God and Jesus. It's all centered upon him, but there's one thing that we can do personally to find peace. And it's really this, we are to walk in obedience. That's all we're called to obedience is an outworking of everything we just talked about if we believe god is in control that god suffers alongside of us that jesus is coming to save us all god requires us to do is to trust and to obey him say jesus i trust you with my life i know it doesn't make sense right now but i'm just going to obey you even though i don't understand see anxiety the reason why the bible is so adamant against anxiety is not just because it causes us discomfort it, the reason why the Bible is against anxiety is because it causes us to disobey God, right? What happens when you're anxious is you, you, you're reaching for anything to save you. Your internal life is in turmoil. You're stressed out. You're anxious. And so you're like, I've got to do this to save me. I've got to do this. I've got to do whatever possible to make myself feel okay. And what we will do is we will sin. We will disobey God. We will do anything. And so we'll snap at our coworkers or our children or our spouses to get them under control. Don't you listen to me, kid. Right, that's what we do. We will cheat, lie, or steal in order to make up for some of our deficiencies. We will be greedy and hoard and not be generous. We will not be filled up with love but suspicion of others. We will not be filled up with hope but a desire to control everything. We will not be filled up with peace but with fear. And this is why, if you notice, right, uh, all throughout chapters one and two. Look at Joseph. Joseph is just obedient. Like everything the angel tells, him, he's like, yes, I'll do it. Like, yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. Like, uh, uh, you know, in chapter one, verse 24, when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, he's like, yes, I'll do it, right? Chapter two, verse 13, he's told to go to Egypt, and then he goes to Egypt. Uh, verse 19, he's told to go back to Israel. He goes back to Israel. And yet we look at that and we're like, oh man, yeah, that, that seems easy. If God came to me in an angel, I would obey God. And yet that's not true. We look at Joseph's obedience as if it was easy, but it was terribly difficult, and we know because we've been given something even greater, which is the Word of God, and it tells us exactly what to do. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, I would implore you to read this for your devotional times. Maybe even this week. Go back and read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and maybe even a part of 7. This is Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and he gives us the very commands that he wants us to obey. And look, he's telling you straight up, don't hate people. Don't harbor bitterness in your heart. And we're like, we can't, I can't obey that. I'm going to keep hating this person. He tells you not to worry. He tells you not to judge. He tells you to not lust. He tells you to be salt and light. He tells us to be poor in spirit, for these are the people that inherit the kingdom of God. And yet for us, we can't obey even these simple things. It's very clear. It's like an angel of the Lord showed up today and said, here's my commands, now obey it. If we want to show that we actually trust, it's not by declaring we trust. It's by living out this idea that we trust in God, by obeying Him every step of the way. I just want to end with this hymn. I, I was just reminded of this hymn once again, and it's a hymn that I sang when I was a kid, and I just love it so much. Let me just end with this. It says this: "When we walk with the Lord in the light of His word, what a glory He sheds on our way. while we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy." in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And here comes the chorus, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Friends, if you want peace and happiness in your life this Christmas, it is to trust and obey that God is in control. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I, I know that there are people in our midst, Lord, who are going through a tremendous time of suffering and lord maybe their world is feeling chaotic right now maybe their family lives maybe their their work lives their relationships might be in chaos maybe their finances are in chaos and lord in the midst of this time in this midst of this christmas season as we remember christ jesus would you help us to remember as well that he is in control that he is sovereign and he's good lord help us to remember that you are a good god that you shed your blood on a cross for us. And that although it looked like you were defeated, you indeed had victory. And although it looks like we're defeated today, Lord, that you are coming back to win victory on our behalf. And so, Lord, would you provide us the peace and the comfort that we need to walk into this new year, to walk out of this old year and into the new, and to really worship and glorify you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.